If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In the 15th and early 16th centuries, the Christian rulers of Ethiopia sent several diplomatic missions to rulers in Western Europe. But why did they launch these missions and did they get what they were asking for? Medieval historian Dr Verena Krebs has been researching this topic and she shared her findings with our content director, David Musgrove. Today, I am talking to Dr Verena Krebs, uh, who is uh, a medieval historian at Ruhr University Bochum in Germany, specialising in uh, Ethiopian history uh, and history of the Horn of Africa generally. She's written a very interesting book, uh, Medieval Ethiopian Kingship, Craft and Diplomacy with Latin Europe, which um, I've had a read of and is, is, is fascinating stuff and takes us into a topic that I would imagine a lot of our listeners are not super familiar with. So we're going to explore the history of medieval Ethiopia and its interactions with uh, Latin Christendom. And there's going to be some terms that might be a bit unfamiliar to you, so we will uh, make sure that we introduce them all. So um, uh, thank you very much for joining us. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Okay, so uh, there's a there's a uh, just taking a, a quote from your book between 1400 and 1530, Ethiopian kings sent at least a dozen diplomatic missions to different princely and ecclesiastical courts in Latin Europe. Um, so that's an interesting thing in itself. Now those missions came from what we call Solomonic Ethiopia. So I guess first things first, what is Solomonic Ethiopia? Uh, that's a very good question, and uh, the specificity for the term is intentional as well, because what I talk about in the book are the Christian kings that rule um, a kingdom in the Horn of Africa, and that came to power in 1270, um, and ruled this kingdom that is now found in the northern highlands of the modern-day states of Ethiopia and Eritrea, um, and was a rather large heterogeneous kingdom that covered most if not all, of the Central Highland Plateau in the Horn of Africa. So, because um, in, in the territory of modern-day Ethiopian Eritrea, um, in this period, in the 15th and 16th uh, centuries, we do find a variety of different political entities, and I'm specialising in this Christian kingdom, ruled by these kings who call themselves um, the descendants of Solomon, and hence um, Solomonic kings. Okay, so uh, that dynasty started in 1270, as you said. How did Christianity get to this part of the world? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Christianity in the region dates back to the 4th century, uh, when the Aksumite king Izana converts to Christianity with his court. So um, most of your listeners might not be very familiar with the kingdom of Aksum, which was um, a very pivotal trading um, hub uh, located between the Mediterranean and the um, Indian Ocean trade routes. It's a kingdom in what is now um, northern Ethiopia, also Eritrea. Um, and uh, the Aksumite king converts with his court to Christianity in the early 4th century. Um, and the important thing to remember here is that Christianity, of course, irradiates outwards from the eastern Mediterranean. So it goes towards Europe 
but it also goes towards the south and to the Horn of Africa. So in a way, it's completely not surprising to have a Christian kingdom um, in the fourth century in the Horn of Africa, uh, because the distance from the Horn of Africa to the Holy Land to the Eastern Mediterranean isn't all that far. Uh, it's very much tied into this larger world between the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean. And Christianity then thrives in this part of the world from then through to our period? Oh, it, it stays there. So, I mean, what we do find is um, Christian kingdoms, Christian realms uh, persisting since the fourth century, uh, definitely. So we have Aksum, which, um, as I said, reaches the height of its power in the fourth, fifth and sixth centuries. There's actually um, like Aksumite kings style themselves as the protectors of Christianity in the region. They lead an intervention in Arabia to protect the persecution of um, Christians that live there in a Jewish kingdom. Um, and uh, Christianity becomes quite fundamental to uh, like local um, Aksumite identity and then the successor states that we do find in, in that region as well. Okay. Um, so when uh, when we talk about uh, Western Europe for this for this period between the 1400s and 1530s, um, particularly in England, we'd be we'd be describing this as the medieval period, moving into the, into the Tudor period. I guess um, is it still appropriate to use the term medieval for 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 this part of the world as well, or should we have a, a different term? Well, I mean, this is a question that um, many historians working on transcultural um, history have been grappling for, with for decades, actually, because um, how do you work on historical subjects that don't fit into these neat geographical borders and boundaries that we modern historians like to actually instill upon them? Um, and uh, so if we're looking at these past phenomena that don't care for geographic, national, religious boundaries, such as, for example, the Black Death, uh, we need to find a vocabulary that brings us together and that makes it mutually in intelligible um, for historians to converse. And um, so, as I said, my colleagues, much before I actually became a researcher in my own right, have been trying to find a vocabulary here to be able to communicate because of course, we all have our specific local geographical um, sort of measures of time. So the, the period that I'm looking at in Ethiopian history would be called the latter part of the early Solomonic period. Now, that's pretty long and doesn't mean much to a lot of people, particularly when I'm writing in English. Um, so in order to, to make it intelligible also to non-specialists, um, a lot of us transcultural historians working on the pre-modern period have decided that for now, regrettably, the term medieval is still the best one we can stick with. Uh, and I mean, it's also important to, remind, uh, to remember that um, the medieval term itself is a construct chronologically. Um, it was invented by the early uh, modern people uh, to distinguish themselves from um, yeah, what they thought they were doing vis-a-vis uh, -vis the people that came before them, whereas, um, you know, like medieval Europeans called themselves the moderni, so the modern people. So it's it's quite important also to keep in mind that even for medieval Europe, um, the, the term medieval is quite contested or is, is a bit problematic because it doesn't cover all places in Europe uh, at the same time. It doesn't mean the same thing everywhere. So it's, it's more just, um, um, it, it's a term that we employ uh, to bring us all to the same table. Uh, but I guess, I don't know, I would be very happy if there was a, a better term, but for now, um, we're stuck with it. 
Uh, okay, so so we'll use medieval in this conversation, but but uh, mindful of the of what you've just laid out. So on that, then, um, listeners um, to this podcast who are based in the UK or in the US, um, uh, a long way from Ethiopia uh, and a long way divorced in time. Why why should we be interested in this topic? And what's it going to tell us? Well, I mean, it's um, so I've been working on this topic for more than a decade now, and. Um, the, the book that I've now written is actually my fourth attempt to put it into writing. Um, and I think what we can learn from this material is uh, that it forces us to revise what we think about African-European encounters at the age of European expansion, or what is still sometimes called the age of exploration. Um, because a colleague recently summed up my research as and I quote, African kingdoms, oh no, African Christian kings treat Europe as a strange distant land of myth and wonder in the late Middle Ages and use it as a place from which they extract religious souvenirs for their local political gain. So that sort of, I mean, it, it puts a few things in perspective and a few of these um, these commonly held beliefs are sort of a little bit sort of, I don't know, shaken at their core, ideally. That's a that's a lovely quote. Who who um who who gave that? We should uh, we should name check that. Uh, that that's uh that's um, uh, David Perry, uh, who's a historian in the US. Okay, that's that's really good. That's a really nice way of looking at, it. and that um that drops us quite nicely into the conversation. I suppose um one other thing that we ought to talk about, and um, just to try and fix this in in people's minds. So if we're talking about the fifteenth century um uh, in England, um that's an interesting time. Uh, lots of conflict and war, hundred years war, Agincourt, Wars of the Roses, lots of dynasties. Um, we kind of imagine knights riding around on horses and a lot of bloodshed and violence. A lot going on. Um. Can you paint any sort of picture for us of, of what life was like and what the main things that were happening in uh, in Solomonic Ethiopia during this period were and how it contrasts or is similar to, to the picture in uh, in Western Europe? Mm-hmm. Okay, so if I, if I were to try to paint a picture, um, it would be we find a large kingdom ruled by Christian kings from a royal court. So it's not entirely dissimilar to what we find in England. Uh, We have monasteries that dot the landscape. We have monks that sometimes run into conflicts with the king. There's certain parallels in social structures. So the land is largely feudal. Um, The kings and nobles hold significant political clout. They endow monasteries. They act as patrons of art and culture. Um, At the royal court, there's a massive banquet and strict court protocol. And you're not supposed to go against court protocol. Um, The land is largely feudal. Um, not everybody is always happy with the king and his decisions, and there's armed conflicts, uh, so that happens as well. There's garrisons and military regiments stationed throughout the kingdom. There's cities that act as centres of trade, and similar to England, every few years the plague sweeps through, and nobody's really quite happy about that, but what can you do? Um, But there's also a few things that are fundamentally different, so uh, at least compared to England also quite different in some ways because it's uh, religiously and linguistically quite um, diverse. So closer probably to how Iberia or Sicily were in the uh, Middle Ages. Um, Geography in Ethiopia is a big factor because it's a highland kingdom. So you have a baseline plateau at about 2,000 meters above sea level um, that is cut through by these very deep river gorges. And uh, on top of the plateau, you have another plateau with mountains. So what does that mean to actually try to rule um, such a geographically complicated and diverse realm? Um, And so that, in a way, um, 
means that the Ethiopian kings had to find ways to, to claim their dominion. Uh, one of the strategies they found was um, to have an itinerant court. So you can imagine 30,000, 40,000 people uh, moving around this highland kingdom um, like clockwork. So they can visit different regions and in a way control these regions through their presence um, instead of just having one capital city where all of the power is centered. Um, and in this massive royal roving court, you have, once again, a strict hierarchical order um, and even like foreign trespassers. So we have Latin Christians who make their way to Ethiopia that get detained at this um, itinerant court where they serve as courtier hostages. Um, also a big thing is that the king is mostly veiled from the eyes of his people. Uh, there's curtains of silk that get held around him, so he's a bit sort of secluded from everybody and only shows his face at very special occasions. Um, and the heirs to the throne are secluded away on the so-called mountain of kings, where they're stashed. And uh, when there's... Uh, like the old king dies and uh, a new one needs to be installed, um, the, the court decides basically which one of the princes gets put down, gets sort of uh, brought down from the mountain and installed as the king. So that, I think, is also quite a big difference to what we find in England at the time. Um, was, it, was it as patriarchal a society as we imagine uh, Western European societies to be? Yeah, that's a, a question that needs much more research. But um, we do have evidence that you had women in very high positions of power. So, for example, you have one um, wife of a king who acts as queen regent for nearly a decade uh, while the um, while the young prince that is to become king is still um, hasn't reached his majority. Um, but I mean, you also have very strong women uh, in the history of Europe, from what I understand. So, it's. Uh, you know, it's a, it, it is in general, I would say, a patriarchal society, but uh, you have very strong and important women that figure in the 15th and early 16th century. And what uh, what connections, uh, if any, did um, did this part of Africa have with Western Europe prior to, to the period we're going to talk about, prior to 1400? How, how, were, were there many communications between the areas? Um, I mean, a common meeting ground basically since antiquity would have been the Holy Land because uh, Christianity was something that tied both Solomonic Ethiopia and also Latin Europeans um, together in places like Jerusalem, but also the holy sites uh, in, you know, like the, what is now the Levant and what is uh, now Egypt. So pilgrims would have encountered one another um, in Europe, of course, in Latin Europe. There were beliefs about Ethiopians stemming from the Bible, because in the Bible you have mentions of an Ethiopian a eunuch, for example, who converts to Christianity. Um, but uh, it is in general a rather um, indistinct sort of indistinct picture um, that seems to have been prevalent in Europe where um, it, it stays very vague. Uh, it stays very vague. There's notices from the 13th century, for example, we have a German pilgrim who goes to the Holy Land and later writes in his travelogue that there's this Christian country beyond Egypt whose inhabitants are called the Essini, and he means the Abyssini, the Ethiopians. Um, but nobody's really quite very sure where exactly it is and, and, and what life there is like. Um, and 
Uh, one of the stories that people might have heard of is the, is the story of Prester John. How does that fit into, into this narrative? Yeah, so from the mid-12th century onwards, we have this tale of this mythical Christian king living somewhere beyond the um, countries of the Muslims, um, who is uh, supposedly writing letters to all of these different European kings and the Pope, um, offering his aid in, in crusading and uh, giving hope, in a way, to Latin Christians who've just lost the Holy Land. Um, and in the uh, late Middle Ages in Europe especially, you find this growing fascination with trying to find this mythical kingdom of Prester John um, and uh, so you have all of these famous literary and intellectual figures from Marco Polo to John Mandeville to Roger Bacon writing about Prester John and what he means and where he is. And first, Latin Christians look for him in Asia. But at the turn of the 14th century, then slowly their gaze begins to shift and go towards Northeast Africa because, as I mentioned before, there had been some knowledge of this Christian kingdom south of Egypt. Um, so it begins to increasingly, like, intellectuals of the day in Latin Europe begin to identify Ethiopia with this place of Prester John and the Ethiopian king with the Prester John. Um, there's an interesting episode that maybe connects to English history in that 1400, um, the newly crowned uh, King Henry IV felt the need to introduce an English friar um, to the magnificent uh, princely ruler of Ethiopia, Prester John, as he addresses his letter. So it's it sort of, you can see that by 1400 in Europe, there's this belief that the Ethiopian king should or must also be Prester John. So it sounds like there's a kind of a vague awareness of this kingdom, this Christian kingdom, uh, but but not not a huge amount of knowledge about it and, and I guess a sense of um, some people people just not really being clear about what it was. Now, I'm, I'm part of the problem, I suppose, was the fact that uh, 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 Solomon at Ethiopia would have been um, in a way surrounded by non-Christian realms or what is, its, what is its link to Islam? Because obviously that would have grown up um, uh, after the uh, initial Christianization of Ethiopia. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, this is once again, uh, this is why I always speak about uh, medieval Solomonic Ethiopia in my book, because there's a question of which Ethiopia are we talking about, because there's Christians in Ethiopia or in modern-day Ethiopia um, or in the geographical realm that is now modern-day Ethiopia and Eritrea, but there's also Muslim principalities um, and there's also Muslims that were living in the Christian kingdom itself and had fundamentally important roles in the Christian kingdom. So this whole dichotomy of Christians, Muslims, that we still sort of find in, in, in general histories of the European Middle Ages, that doesn't really work here it, because it is such a diverse place, right? Um, and the Solomonic Christian um, kings and uh, also just Solomonic Christians in general uh, or Ethiopian Christians in general, had a close relationship with Egypt because the Ethiopian metropolitan, so the head of the local Ethiopian church, always was an Eth uh, Egyptian monk that was sent by the Patriarch of Alexandria to Ethiopia. Um, and I think we also shouldn't forget that uh, there was still substantial Christian communities living in the Nubian kingdoms and also especially, of course, 
uh, Egypt until the 15th century and well beyond, actually. So, um, like, Solomonic Ethiopia might be the lone Christian-ruled kingdom in Northeast Africa, but there are substantial Christian populations in the general extended Eastern Mediterranean. So it's not it's not isolated in the sense that there's, there's quite a lot of things around it. And also you're describing a very interesting uh, relationship between these different religions, which perhaps um, we don't see so much of in Western Europe. I'm, I'm not going to ask you to, to comment on that because I'm sure that's out of your uh, out of your research area. But it sounds like there's uh, there's some interesting things going on. Right. So so let's. Let's talk about these diplomatic uh, missions, which is uh, um, a big part of, of your uh, of your excellent book. Um, can you just uh, tell us a little bit about the, these missions? Um, where did they go? Uh, how did they get there? Mm-hmm. So, um, from the very early 15th century, you find these um, Ethiopian missions that appear in very many different parts of Europe. Um, so, the first mission gets sent out around maybe the year 1400 by the Ethiopian king, Dawit, and he sends an embassy to Venice um, with four live leopards in tow, actually, which is quite the logistics to contemplate, actually. Um, so, he sends an ambassador there, but within another year, he sends another ambassador to Rome. And within yet another year, he sends another embassy to Rome. So there's, um, uh, like, within just five years, we have three embassies that go to the Italian peninsula. Um, but, uh, did they, in did the, they all get leopards, or was it just the first one? Just the first one. The second one uh, apparently just carries, um, like, beautiful miters and uh, precious stones. So those would be a little bit easier to transport, I guess. Um, so, but uh, Solomonic ambassadors also appear in uh, in Valencia, so in the Kingdom of Aragon, uh, modern day Spain. Um, they appear in Sicily. Uh, they appear um, in Naples. We also have uh, Ethiopian monks that uh, make their way north of the Alps. So we have some Ethiopian monks that act as ambassadors, although I, I assume they weren't sent out as ambassadors, but they get sort of cast into that role um, through just life as it happens to them. Um, So they end up north of the Alps at the Council of Constance, which they attend and meet the Pope and then travel around a bit more. You have other Ethiopian um, pilgrims that end up all the way to Santiago de Compostela, so at the very, very west of the Iberian Peninsula. Um, So throughout the 15th century, it turns out there's Ethiopian travellers all over, basically. And did any of them make it as far as Britain or do we not know that? Not that we know of, regrettably, no. So, how are they? How are they getting to Europe? Do we know what uh, what transport routes they were using? So, um, there's uh, like a very, as I said, um, even the Aksumite Kingdom was very much tapped into the trading networks between the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean, and that doesn't change throughout time. So, you have one of the main thoroughfares of pre-modern trade that goes from the Indian Ocean through the Red Sea. um, And then you cross the desert uh, at some point um, uh, so that you end up hitting the Nile just beyond the cataract. So you can sail down or up the Nile to Cairo and then to Alexandria. And then you're, of course, hitting the Mediterranean and there's all of these shipping routes in the Mediterranean and it's quite well connected. And uh, we know, for example, that Ethiopian pilgrims were making this exact track from the Ethiopian highlands, the Red Sea, desert, Nile, to the Mediterranean by the thousands each year. Um, so actually getting to the Holy Land was fairly simple and straightforward. 
Um, and from the Holy Land, of course, you had all of these connections running to different places in Europe, and particularly the big port cities like Venice or Genoa. So it wasn't it wasn't the case that these uh, these Ethiopian embassies and monks they weren't going out into into alien foreign lands. They were following fairly well established uh, routes. Yeah, and actually, uh, I mean, they had a certain ease of travel that their counterparts in Latin Europe didn't enjoy because they could co- uh, cross through Mamluk Egypt without issues. So the Mamluk authorities that governed Egypt at this time weren't too happy about Latin Christians, for example, making their way south of Cairo. So as a Latin Christian, in general, you were prohibited from going further south and crossing through Egypt. So that trade route was in a way blocked for many people from Europe. But the reverse wasn't true because um, the Solomonic kings uh, and the Mamluk sultans actually had quite good diplomatic relations. So Solomonic pilgrims, Ethiopian pilgrims, actually enjoyed special privileges when they were going to the Holy Land and could go comparatively unhindered and with ease. And we even have um, descriptions of Ethiopian uh, pilgrims being treated to very nice meals by Muslims in Egypt. Um, So that was actually quite straightforward and apparently not as uncomfortable as one would think. Um, so what you described earlier was with some sort of small itinerant parties of monks uh, who became embassies uh, after the fact, I suppose. But you also described some which were, were more clear-cut diplomatic missions. So the, the, the latter, how, how large are these missions talk? How many people? And you mentioned uh, leopards and, and things like that. So is this big endeavours, big enterprises? So that's an interesting question because, for example, um, the the first Ethiopian embassy that lands in Venice in the summer of 1402, um, in the Venetian sources, we only get the mention of one ambassador. He's an Italian man, incidentally. Um, uh, but we also know that he was ferrying four live leopards about. And we know from the Venetian sources later that the Venetians actually had quite big problems taking care of these wild animals. Um, and, and they have these letters that get sent about, can you borrow me a wagon? It's quite complicated to deal with this leopard. So I, I think, I mean, we even if we have only one ambassador that gets mentioned in the sources, uh, we must assume that this man wasn't traveling by himself because the sheer logistics of the thing would have been substantial. Um, and I mean, for later embassies, for example, in uh, in the 1420s, we have uh, another Ethiopian embassy that goes to Valencia. And there we have explicit mention of one Muslim trader who is the um, main ambassador, but also some Ethiopian Christian monks who come with him and also their servants and slaves. So it must have been a sizable group, but in the sources itself, it's sometimes just these sort of important figureheads that get mentioned because apparently I think also in, in Europe, they were perceived as the ambassador and all of their helpers, I guess. Okay, um, so uh, it's, um, it's it's fascinating, isn't it, to, to think about having the, these um, these these exotic groups groups coming up. I suppose I've used the word exotic. Um, were were they deemed to be exotic by the, the people they met in Latin Europe? What was the reaction from from the from the people they went to see? Um, exotic, yes. Uh, although uh, I think also within Latin Europe, of course, all of these um, Ethiopian travelers and especially the Ethiopian religious uh, like ambassadors, so the, the ones that were clearly identifiable as monks or priests, 
um, they were seen as part of this larger Christian world that was very clear to a lot of Latin Christian Europeans that um, like there was a large Christian world out there and it might include people from all sorts of different places. Um, but of course, we do find uh, um, remarks where local Europeans, for example, describe how wondrous and strange it was that there was uh, a black Muslim uh, trader from Ethiopia traveling together with a black Christian monk and also um, a, a, an Italian that had been living in Ethiopia for decades. So that draws some some sort of curious uh, observations by contemporaries because a lot of, it seems a lot of contemporary um, Europeans were quite puzzled by this diversity that you would have an ambassadorial group that is multi-faith and has multiple points of origin, but they're all working for the Solomonic king and, and ful fulfilling his mission. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I mean, you can't, create relics as well. You can only obtain them from other Christian places. Um, so I think sending out these embassies would have been another way to really get something that you can't buy, that you can't really buy a relic. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. We had a, a, a webinar with Professor Olivette Otele um, the other day where she um, uh, made the point that um, through, through medieval Western Europe, um, black-skinned people wouldn't necessarily have been any sort of... Um, and, and it wouldn't have been particularly unusual. People would have been aware of of, of, of that sort of skin colour. So is there is there anything in the source that you looked at that suggests that any surprise at, at the skin colour of these embassies or, or the travellers? No, I mean, if anything, it's um, it's it, it's sort of like small offhand remarks. For example, we have a source of uh, 1404 where an Italian um, an Italian uh, 
he's a church official and he writes a letter to a friend saying, oh, by the way, I've met these three Ethiopian monks. Uh, they're black and bearded. They have a, a scar of a cross on their forehead, which seems to be their local custom. And they're here and everybody's really excited and we want to talk to them because uh, we want to know more about their place and whether it's really their kingdom is really the kingdom of Prester John. Um, so it's a, it's one adjective that is being used, but it's, it's part of a larger... Um, sort of uh, description of these people um, uh, where it's uh, the, the clear focus seems to be that uh, the excitement is not because they're black Africans, but it is because they're identified as the people of Prester John and people of uh, like Prester John was the most important, most militarily powerful, wealthiest king in the world. So how exciting is it that his uh, ambassadors finally came to call or, or so the local Europeans thought? Um, what about language? Was that uh, was that an issue? Were were the Ethiopians able to make themselves understood? I, I think. I mean, <laughs> the close ties between Ethiopia and the Holy Land, uh, and and also the Christian communities of the Eastern Mediterranean, um, uh, give us the impression that um, Ethiopian travelers were actually quite uh, uh, quite multilingual um, and and had uh, the Arabic acted as an uh, intermediary language. The problem uh, then is uh, when these Ethiopian um, ambassadors or pilgrims travel to places where um, Europeans might not necessarily speak Arabic. So um, in the Holy Land or in the Eastern Mediterranean, there might be a few Latin Christian traders that have some Arabic because it comes with with their profession. Um, but for example, in the council at the Council of Constance uh, in uh, in 1416, we have some Ethiopian uh, pilgrims that turn up there and stay for very many months. And uh, a German chronicler later writes in his chronicle, um, they stayed for very many months. It was fantastic and such an honor for all of us, but nobody could quite understand what they were saying. Um, so uh, I, I guess, you know, language was an issue at, at the point um, where uh, sort of, uh, I, I guess, the shared languages uh, petered out at some point. Um, it's a very, it's a very nice dry comment, isn't it? Uh, it's a lovely quote in your book from that one. Um, so, so uh, which which were the most sort of most important uh, of these embassies? Give, give us a sense about about some of the some of the trips and, and, what, and what happened. Um, so, uh, the important, I mean, it starts off as I mentioned with these three embassies that the Ethiopian king Dawit sends out in the very early fourteen hundreds. Um, so they turn up in Venice, 1402, Rome, 1403, 1404, um, and they're all very, very interested in specific things. Um, so from the Ethiopian side, we actually have a lovely Ge'ez, which is the local um, liturgical language. We have a local Ge'ez source that says uh, King David sent out his embassy to the Latin West because he had heard that uh, the rulers of the Latin West had a piece of the true cross uh, a relic of the true cross that they had um, shared amongst themselves for the strength of their realm. And when David heard this story, he was like, oh, I would really like to have a, a piece of the true cross for my kingdom. Uh, so he sends out this embassy, sends out uh, the four live leopards uh, and Antonio Bartoli uh, to, to schlep them halfway around the world. Um, and uh, so the Ethiopian ambassador arrives there. Um, and uh, we also know that he, he comes back 
um, with very specific things that apparently the Ethiopian ruler requested. So he comes back with cartloads of religious items, beautiful garments um, that were seen as very exotic and strange. Um, so embroidered priestly robes, vestments, mitres, um, beautiful chalices, everything that to the local Ethiopian court apparently seemed very weird and strange and exotic. Um, we also know that the Ethiopian ambassador in Venice had requested several um, artisans to take back with him to Ethiopia. Um, and uh, we know their professions, which give us uh, an interesting clue about what the Ethiopian ruler might have also been interested in, because this is a recurring pattern. So it seems that the Ethiopian rulers were interested in obtaining building-related labor. So they want um, carpenters, stonemasons, uh, brick makers, um, and especially painters, uh, so and metalsmiths and silversmiths and goldsmiths, um, for which there was a heightened demand in Ethiopia at the time because the rulers were building a lot of prestigious royal churches and monasteries. And if you could get, um, I don't know, an exotic craftsman from a faraway place, as Venice was to the Ethiopians at that time, that would have heightened your local prestige. So that leads us very nicely into into this big question of, of why, why these uh, these missions were actually sent. Um, and as you outline in, in your book, um, so there's been a, an assumption uh, amongst uh, historians for a while that, that the Ethiopians were in some way looking for for military support, some 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 help from these uh, these Western kings co communities that could that could do something for them. But actually, you're challenging that and saying we're looking at a, a much more nuanced picture. So um, they're looking for for relics and and support to build those monasteries. So tell us a bit more about that. Yes, yeah, so um, as I said, I worked on this material ever since I was a master's student, and it took me a long time to really go against decades and decades of scholarship, um, which I finally did in the book, because up till now, um, the established hypothesis was that the Ethiopian kings reached out to Latin Europe because they needed, um, you know, they, they needed uh, masters of art and industry to raise the civil and technical level of the Ethiopian kingdom. And that's a quote by an, uh, by an Italian researcher um, that really shaped how scholarship has seen and read these embassies. So um, for the longest time uh, in scholarship, um, it was the established belief that the purpose of all of these delegations had been to ask for artisan technologists, for military experts and access to European technology. And please understand that I'm putting European technology in air quotes here. Um, and, and that belief has always struck me as profoundly weird because from everything we know about Ethiopian history of the 15th century, this, is, this wasn't a kingdom that needed technical aid or assistance or lacked skilled labor. Um, I mean, the Solomonic kings were, they had aggressively expanded their territory in the 14th century and asserted their influence, their control over this territory that they then controlled, which was the largest in the Horn of Africa. Um, and uh, they are the ones in the 15th century also picking fights, starting wars with people that they understood as their rebellious tributaries. Um, so that, that doesn't seem um, like it's a kingdom that needs military aid or technologists from Europe if you're the one actually picking the fights and, and, and starting everything. Um, and I mean, if you look at Ethiopian uh, sources of the time, you also realize that um, this was a very wealthy and incredibly well-connected kingdom. Um, so once again, why should they need European technology or aid? 
I mean, they're on the motorway of pre-modern trade um, that is running right past their door, basically, through the Red Sea. Um, So this didn't really, like, it didn't make sense to me, but it also didn't make um, sense when I read the sources again. Um, So I looked at all of the sources that have come down to us, and it really turns out that um, this wish for ecclesiastical uh, objects, um, so especially precious garments, fine fabrics, ideally with religious embroidery, is is of high interest to the Ethiopian kings. Um, there's an interest in relics. Uh, there's like, because I mean, relics for Christian kings, relics of course are a, an item of prestige. It, it heightens uh, um, it, it heightens the influence and the the, the I don't know the, the glory of any monastery and also of a king if you can donate a precious relic to a monastery or to a church. Um, and we do find this interest in builders and stonemasons and painters and carpenters and all of these other people that are building things uh, and specifically building architectural monuments, um, which really works quite well if you consider that at that time in Ethiopia there were dozens of these really big prestigious royal monasteries and churches being built at the same time. And, I mean, if you're building all of these royal churches and monasteries, um, you need to endow them with lands, but they also need, of course, uh, they need books, they need precious garments for the priests, you know, to also show that you're being a good sovereign and that you're providing for your priests. And it also is a testament to your own glory. Um, so you need all of these things, um, robes, tunics, mitres, you know, everything. Um, locally in Ethiopia, uh, and it, it, this was really where I was like, okay, hmm. Technology, not so much, but if you're building a lot of royal churches uh, and you're basically building a monument to your Christian belief and your control over the territory that you claim to rule, wouldn't you really need all of the stuff that they're actually asking for in the sources, uh, which then reshapes the way we view these uh, these interactions quite a bit. So, so the story we've got then is, is the Solomonic kings basically looking to strengthen their power, to strengthen their prestige and authority among their own people um, by creating all these uh, churches and monasteries uh, around their uh, around their land and endowing them with with the with the stuff that impresses, uh, which which I guess was you know they had to get from from Latin Christendom because that's that's where the, uh, uh, the the majority of the relics were. What is there any difference in the way that relics were used and understood between the between the two areas? I mean, so this is um, this is an interesting point as well because, uh, of course, I mean, like um, a lot of relics, for example, get uh, get taken from Constantinople to Venice um, during the Fourth Crusade. Um, so there, you do have um, uh, the relocation, if you will, of uh, important relics from the Eastern Mediterranean to Western Christendom in the 13th century. Um, and of course, I mean, any place, any any Christian um, locality, church, monastery uh, could have prestigious um, relics, ideally, or would have them. Um, but for Ethiopia particularly, there's uh, an issue there that um, the Ethiopians didn't dismember their saints. So, um, you know, like, uh, I think especially in, in English, um, 
English sources, you do find sometimes descriptions of the rather vigorous dismemberment of a saint's body and then the head goes somewhere and the hands go somewhere else and the fingers and what have you. And that is not a practice that Ethiopian Christianity subscribes to. Now, what that leads to, of course, is a bit of a scarcity because if you're preserving a saint's body whole, um, that means you only have one locality that can have that body or that relic. Um, and, uh, I mean, you can't create relics as well. You can only obtain them from other Christian places. Um, so I think sending out these embassies would have been another way to really get something that you can't buy, like you can't really buy a relic if it's supposed to be a true relic. You need to be in exchange with other Christians that might have it and might try to persuade them to, to give it to you um, so that that then heightens your own glory and prestige. So did, did the embassies achieve their aims? Did they get these relics? Did they did they come back? Because it, it's quite a long journey, isn't it, between Ethiopia and, and, uh, and these Western European states? Um, took several years in, in, in many cases. Um, did they come back with, with, with what the kings wanted? And did uh, embassies come back as well? Were embassies sent from uh, Latin Christian states to Ethiopia asking for things themselves? Um, so initially, it seems that uh, Ethiopian or Solomonic diplomatic outreach was quite successful. Um, as I said, King David's three missions in the very early 1400s um, all seem to have been, uh, uh, definitely the first one was a massive success because we have uh, these local descriptions of cartloads of beautiful items being brought back from Venice. Um Things get a little bit trickier uh, with later embassies because um, th there's an embassy sent out in the 1420s to uh, Valencia that on its way back to Ethiopia actually gets embroiled in a major scandal and the head ambassador is accused of treason and gets executed publicly in Cairo and the whole thing falls to bits and it later, as I, um, as I painstakingly um, reconstruct in the book, um, it's all a grand conspiracy that had nothing to do with Ethiopian crusading interests or wherever. It, it's, um, it, it is by accident because the Ethiopian head ambassador had fallen afoul of the Egyptian authorities before and they realized that this was the perfect opportunity to really, you know, um, get rid of this guy who'd been a bit troublesome before to them. Um, so this embassy then ends in death and it's not a great success. Um, and we also know that uh, another embassy that was sent out as a response from Spain or the Spanish peninsula to Ethiopia, that they die at sea. So that's also a big factor um, that uh, for European embassies trying to get to Ethiopia, it's a big problem um, because Egypt is basically closed to them, to the official embassies. Uh, and the first official European embassy that actually gets to Ethiopia goes so by the way of circumnavigating Africa in the very early 16th century. So 120 years, we have Ethiopian embassies traveling more or less without problems all across Europe or, or towards Europe and all over Europe. Um, but the reverse only happens, you know, 120 years later in the early 16th century. Um, so, so there's a mismatch there as well about the, the capabilities of being able to initiate um, to initiate these exchanges um, because really the Solomonic side is the one maintaining this diplomatic encounter. 
So um, earlier on in the conversation, you talked about the itinerant Ethiopian court and the number of people involved in it, 30, 40,000 people, I think you said, so clearly a grand affair. So did that... Uh, did, the, did the grandeur and the and the advanced nature of, of society in Ethiopia did that did that come across to to Latin Christians or not? Were they getting that message if if their embassies weren't getting there to see it themselves? Oh, definitely. I mean, we do um, we have uh, circumstantial evidence. We can see it, for example, in the way that um, the Aragonese king Alfonso V is addressing himself to the Ethiopian king. Um, so, in the way that he addresses. Uh, this Ethiopian king, King Yeshak, um, we can see that the Ethiopian ambassadors must have told the king of Aragon, you know, this is a grand lord. He has um, he has the Ark of the Covenant. He is the heir to the biblical King Solomon and to the biblical King David. And he is really the first of the Christian um, kings among the earth. Uh, so you can see that the Ethiopian ambassadors must have told um, the, the European co- uh, courts um, how these Solomonic kings saw themselves and their place in the world and, and, and that they perceived themselves as rather like the first Christian kings among the earth, basically. And so did any any Latin uh, Latin kings or rulers get a sense that, hang on, we, we could get something out of these guys? You know, they sound, they sound pretty good. We can use them and, and ask for anything um, uh, in return, any, any military support. Did, did anyone even think that they might be involved in a crusade? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, that same um, Aragonese king, uh, Alfonso V, um, as a response to the embassy, the Ethiopian embassy that visits him in the 1420s, um, he uh, sends out his own little embassy that is supposed to go to Ethiopia. And we have a memorandum um, that was compiled for uh, for the uh, ambassador from Aragon to Ethiopia, who was to act as a sort of... um, a bit of a spy and report on the Ethiopian kingdom and report truthfully what he saw. And we get the gist um, or we get the sense uh, of this memorandum um, that Alfonso was very, very interested in military aid from Ethiopia and also financial aid, because it says explicitly in this uh, source that uh, the uh, Aragonese ambassador should ask, you know, the Ethiopian king what he could do in, in terms of money to support the Aragonese crown which, uh, I mean, is, is, is uh, quite striking. Um, so uh, I, I uh, visited Ethiopia 20 years ago or so, had a, a fascinating time trekking in uh, in these highlands. Um, I didn't uh, I didn't go to Lalibela, the kind of one of the most famous uh, monastic sites in Ethiopia, um, and I didn't see uh, uh, so I didn't see any monastery. Now Lalibela is a bit earlier than, uh, than than what we're talking about here, isn't it? But do any of these monasteries survive uh, and and can be visited today by uh, by tourists? No, regrettably they can't, um, because uh, what happens in the uh, late 1520s and 1530s especially is that we get a series of really devastating wars between the Solomonic Christian Kingdom and their erstwhile tributary, the Sultanate of Adal. Um, So the Sultanate of Adal had been um, uh, a Muslim principality that the Christian kings always regarded as their tributary, but the, uh, you know, the Adali sultans weren't quite happy to be relegated to this status. And in the, um, in the 1520s, 1530s, 
um, the Adali troops and the Adali Sultanate actually overruns the Christian highlands um, and is very successful in uh, in, in leading uh, what in Arabic sources is called a conquest of Abyssinia or, or of the Ethiopian Christian kingdom. Um, and because these royal monasteries were basically markers of Solomonic Christian sovereign power and might and rule, they become a special target in these wars. Um, so you have very long descriptions, uh, actually, in an Arabic source of how these monasteries and these churches must have looked. Um, but then it also says, well, and then the troops uh, tore it all up into pieces and set the rest on fire. Um, so what we now actually have are just um, a few stones because specifically there was such an onslaught and 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 and. and if you will, rage directed at these centers of Solomonic power, because it wasn't just a monastery, it was a symbol of Solomonic Christian rule, which once again also shows us how important they must have been to the Solomonic Christian kingdom to begin with, because they they, they react, like the reaction to them was so um, inflammatory. Are there archaeological opportunities to explore any of these sites then? Is that, uh, are there projects going on? Um, there's, uh, there were some very, very, very preliminary um, surveys in the 1960s and 70s, but the vast majority of these sites are n- not even surveyed, not even to speak of um, archaeologically explored. So that would be a fantastic uh, opportunity to learn much more. I mean, we have some fascinating um descriptions of these uh, of these monasteries which say that they were built from these huge ashlar um, stone slabs that had these heavy relief carvings so beautiful carvings on these giant stones and uh, that they were plated within uh, with uh, gold set with precious jewels and pearls and corals uh, and painted and whatnot and the early preliminary um, surveys that we have have confirmed this um, so I guess if there were to be thorough excavations, we might know much, much more about them. But as it is, we have descriptions, one from a Latin Christian source and one from an Arabic source, as well as several local Ge'ez sources, of course, that give us a sense of these beautiful, beautiful churches and monasteries. So is this the end of the Solomonic Christian dynasty then, this, this, uh, this uh, Muslim assault, or uh, does, it, does it live on? Um, no, so it, it lives on, but it lives on under very, different, um, under very different circumstances, because I think uh, these wars of the late 1520s to 1543, uh, 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 when the Adali Sultan or the Adali leader of the army is killed, um, uh, it, it is really a fault line within Ethiopian history uh, with a clear before and after, before we have this immensely prosperous kingdom. Um, and afterwards, one of the sons of the previous king actually inherits his father's kingdom um, and tries to rebuild it. Uh, but he also rebuilds it in a very different world because now we're in the mid-16th century, the Portuguese have rounded the Horn of Africa, they're in the Indian Ocean, they're in the Red Sea region, the Ottomans um, are in that same area. Um, All trade networks, old uh, power relations are being upset left, right and centre. And uh, like at the height of these wars, the Solomonic Christian king actually calls to Portugal for help and says, finally, um, like, 
I need your help. I need military support. I need guns. I need everything you can give me because at that point he is basically um, a king without a kingdom. And the Portuguese heed his call and they come and help the Solomonic troops um, defeat the Muslim army. Um, But then the Ethiopian king invites these Portuguese men to stay in Ethiopia as a sign of respect and thanks. Uh, And that opens the door for Catholic, because then at this point we're not talking about Latin Christians anymore, we're talking about Catholicism, um, to to, uh, invite Catholic missionaries. So the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, come uh, to Ethiopia um, because they have the perfect opportunity now to missionize uh, in the Ethiopian uh, Christian kingdom because they say, well, there's all of these uh, Portuguese Christians that have now settled in this kingdom and we need to look after their spiritual means. But what they're really trying to do is to get the Ethiopian Christians to convert from ancient Orthodox Ethiopian Christianity to Latin Christian or Catholic Christianity. And that is just a very different encounter between Europe and Ethiopia at this point then. So we've got a completely different dynamic then, basically, which is uh, a big part of of the changing global geopolitics. Tell us how your research helps us to to reframe our image of uh, of not just of medieval Ethiopia, but also of the the medieval Latin West. Um, Yeah, well, I think it sort of, um, it shows us that uh, what we tend to think of as fixed Um, European medieval interests or realities needn't be um, applicable to a larger larger medieval uh, Mediterranean world, if you will, because we do find here these these African Christians who are completely uninterested in crusading, for example, um, and who uh, obviously have no big trouble going to Europe, but are not really interested in maintaining lasting um, diplomatic relations. They're using these European connections for their own purposes back home. They're basically literally extracting something something from Europe to bring back home to uh, the Ethiopian Highland Court. So that uh, also upsets, uh, I think, the way we we read African-European encounters in this time, where it's still, I think, quite often that we we think about European exploration and whatnot, but what we find here really is, um, if you will, an African exploration uh, of Europe on its very own terms and for very specific local purposes. Um, And and that shifts our gaze, I think, quite a bit um, and and, then de-centers Europe um, because in this way Europe becomes the strange other um, and, and the strange distant land that, uh, you know, you can go to and get some nice things, but uh, what they eventually want from you is not really your concern. How, how easy is it to sort of refocus the gaze and, and look at uh, look at medieval Europe, as you just said, as the outsider from, from this um, clearly advanced and, and interesting civilization uh, kingdom to, to, to the south? Um, uh, do we have enough sources and, uh, and, and access to research to allow us to do that? 
Um, I mean, so the the sources um, that I used for this book, a lot of them have been known for a very long time because um, very many of these sources of these diplomatic encounters are actually preserved in European archives because we have the copies of, for example, the Aragonese king's letters to the Ethiopian ruler. And we have these um, these remarks in itineraries or in, in, in diary entries in Senate um, Senate records, uh, what have you, all of this administrative um, uh, stuff that has come down to us and has been mined by European medievalists for, for a very long time. But of course, we also have a lot of sources from Ethiopia and also its northern neighbour, Egypt, uh, which are in Arabic and Ge'ez, respectively. Uh, and they have also been known for quite a long time, but um, have mostly been... Um, uh, been used by uh, philologists, so people looking at the literatures and languages of the region instead of um, transcultural historians who try to bring the three together and then shape sort of uh, out of the fragments that we have, try to shape a larger picture. Uh, so, but I think there's there's a, there's really a lot that remains to be done, and uh, uh, sort of this em- image that Im- emerges through the historical cracks or the the record um, is really one of uh, an incredibly multifaceted Christian kingdom um, that, uh, yeah, is just entirely fascinating. Um, and uh, if we had if there was more archaeological research, I mean, we would also have uh, like a whole nother different group of sources or art historical research to to bring together to to form a more comprehensive um, image of the culture, um, the cultural history of Ethiopia at that time. I think there's there's really a lot that remains to be done. Do you have to be a real polyglot to be able to get into this? Then do you need to be able to? have Arabic and uh, as well as Latin and, and uh, gaze as well? Um, uh, yes, uh, definitely. And I mean, I, uh, I I learned Latin quite late in life and uh, very painfully made my way around the Arabic sources, um, but it works. But I mean, one of the uh, things that uh, historians working on transcultural subjects have long been... Um, saying is that to do this research and to do it well, you need to cooperate um, and you need to to work with colleagues and pool your resources because only then, I think, can we try to grasp a fuller picture of the past. Uh, And I think, I mean, this is what a lot of um, my colleagues are doing. This is also what I'm doing. So I, I, I talk to specialists in Ge'ez uh, and specialists in Arabic and uh, also actually specialists in Latin even um, uh, to, to verify my reading of the sources and, 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 and sort of try to shed as much light as I can uh, onto that past. Okay, um, I think we should we should finish up now. But that's been a really interesting discussion. We've covered loads of stuff. We could, I'm sure, we've only really scratched the surface of of, of what uh, what we could talk about. So let's wrap up. Um, uh, can you just offer us a, a few concluding comments about uh, about what what we should take from this interview and from your research? Well, I think um, sort of. Uh, my research and and hopefully also this interview maybe offers a glimpse into one aspect of African-European relations, a very specific thing, namely these diplomatic contacts between Solomonic Ethiopia and the Latin West, which we however can use as a lens to look, you know, at broader Ethiopian cultural history, but also more broadly at interactions between a sovereign Christian kingdom that was located in Africa and that really encountered the world um, on its own terms uh, in a period that we really 
do not necessarily um, uh, focus on African agency enough when we study the pre-modern past. That was Dr. Verena Krebs. Her book, Medieval Ethiopian Kingship, Craft and Diplomacy with Latin Europe, is published now by Palgrave Macmillan. You can find a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow for an episode on everything you wanted to know about the Vietnam War. Thank you.